Welcome to the Jay Kim Show, Hong Kong's very first podcast focused on entrepreneurship and investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities only in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Ryan Levesque, author of the number one national best-selling book called Ask, the counterintuitive online formula to discover exactly what your customers want to buy, create a mass of raving fans, and take any business to the next level. Ryan has a super interesting backstory. After studying East Asian studies in college, he found himself working in a corporate job on Wall Street in Shanghai, apart from his wife, who was studying locally here in Hong Kong. And he was just miserable with his life. So in 2008, during the global financial crisis, Ryan decided to quit his job, move to Hong Kong to be with his wife and launch his first business, which was selling ebooks online on how to make Scrabble jewelry. Yeah. So he turned that small business into something that was making 10,000 US dollars a month. So from those humble beginnings, he developed what he calls the ask method, which has grown into a multi-million dollar business where he teaches business owners actionable strategies for asking their customers exactly what they want to buy first through various surveys before trying to sell them anything. Very interesting episode for you guys. Let's jump right in. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the Jay Kim Show. We're very happy to have you here. Jay, it's awesome to be here. I am super excited. Yeah, and uh, and we are super excited to have you too, uh, particularly because you do have a little bit of history and background with Hong Kong and, and the region. So why don't you give us a quick uh, intro? Who's Ryan Levesque? What do you do for a living? And then let's get into a little bit of your backstory because you have a really interesting backstory. Totally. Well, my name is Ryan Levesque. I'm probably best known for writing a book called Ask. It's a book that has sold over 100,000 copies, and it was actually just recently published in Chinese. And I have the Chinese copy of the book right here in my office. And Ask, the book is really a two-part book. The first part of the book tells a little bit of my story and how I discovered something that we now call the Ask Method which is a marketing method to better understand your audience and then put people into different buckets so you can tailor your messaging to each of the different segments that exist in your market. The second half of the book starts to get into the actual how-to, the step-by-step on how you do this. And I got first started in this industry about 10 years ago, and it was actually in Hong Kong where I launched my first business before moving back to the United States. Nice. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I want to get into a little bit of your story because um, I think that it's going to resonate a lot with uh, the audience here and people listening worldwide. And so Hong Kong, uh, obviously people, the audience listening here knows the city very well and knows that it's a sort of a transient place, a melting pot, a lot of expats come in and out. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of people working in finance. I myself uh, am in finance, used to work in fi- uh, on the sell side for a long time. Now I'm in asset management. But, uh, you know, I know that you uh, were working in finance for a while uh, and had yourself uh, found yourself over in Asia. So maybe we can uh, we can dial dial the clock back a little bit. And you can tell us about your experience there, 
how um you know maybe some of what caused you to want to pursue uh, starting a business on your own and uh, kind of how you let how, how your life led you down this path uh, of entrepreneurship well totally so in college I studied two things I studied neuroscience and I studied East Asian studies and at Brown when you study East Asian studies there are three tracks there's the China track the Japan track and the Korea track and each of which come with learning the language and so I took the China track and originally I was really interested in studying Chinese and Chinese culture to study traditional Chinese medicine. I was really fascinated by the impact of traditional Chinese medicine on the brain, things like acupuncture and herbal medicines and things like that. And oh. so I started down this path and then along the way I became really fascinated with China and just got sort of obsessed with this idea of, you know, spending time living in China, living in the wild wild west and and, and really going into business. And so after graduating, I, st- I worked on Wall Street in New York City for a period of time and then eventually was offered a job by AIG, the insurance company, to run AIG's expansion across China. So mm-hmm. I left New York, moved to Shanghai, and my job was basically opening up insurance sales offices around China. And I had a small local team that I was running and I was just traveling from city to city to city. And at the time, when I was living in Shanghai, my wife, we got married right before we moved to China together. Uh, She's also American. And she finished her graduate degree in New York City and decided that she wanted to pursue a PhD at HKU, at Hong Kong University. And she studied history. And so for three years, we we lived this crazy bi-country marriage where I was in Shanghai, she was in Hong Kong, and we visited each other every couple weeks. And so this is back in 2006 to 2008. And in 2008, I just was exhausted. And I'd reached this point where I said, you know what? I don't want to be living on a, in an airplane, living out of hotels, tethered to my BlackBerry, flying from city to city anymore. Yeah. Um, I want to go into business for myself. And I had some friends of mine who were making money on the internet. I didn't know exactly what that meant yet. Uh, but mm-hmm. they had these nice little businesses where they could work from home. And so in late 2008, this is when the world financial crisis hit. I'm sure you remember this. Um, I woke up one day to the Wall Street Journal Asia edition sitting on my office desk and the headline read AIG to file for bankruptcy. And this is the company that I was working for. And it was that day that I called up my wife and I said, honey, I think today's the day. I drafted up my resignation letter. I handed it in to my boss and I said, I'm going to leave. Um, and the excuse that I gave at the time is I said, I don't want to be living in a different country for my wife. I want us to live together. Like I'm sick of the, you know, bi country marriage thing. But the real reason was I used it as a, uh, the fire under my butt to finally quit and start my own business. And so I, 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 I sold and donated everything that I owned in Shanghai, except for two suitcases. And I got on a one way flight to, uh, Hong Kong. And that's where my wife and I started our first business was in a tiny little apartment in Hong Kong. Man, that's incredible. And and was your wife and family supportive of this entire thing? Because I think, uh, you know, you were obviously in probably at the time was probably a fairly senior position expanding, you know, doing well in your career, you know, all of this. And for you to walk away, you know, this is this is the this is the classic you know, Wall Street dilemma, right? I mean, it's like the golden handcuffs. Like, how do you walk away from that nice big paycheck? 
um, you know, and, and you probably could have easily, even though your company might have been going through bankruptcy, you could have, I'm sure you could have easily found yourself another comparable job in a, at a competitive competing firm or something paying you just as much. So how were you able to, uh, what, you know, was, was your family supportive and how were you able to justify that in your mind, you know, taking that leap of faith? Cause I think that there's a lot of people that were are exactly in that position, maybe very close to where you where you were when you made made the leap of faith. Uh, you know, they they probably have some entrepreneurial tendencies, but they just can't walk away from that paycheck. You know, I'll tell you, Jay, it was the thing up until that point in my life that took more courage than anything else. I'm sure. And the reason why I say that is because my family did not believe in what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> wow. I went through what was really a, a 10 year, say it a, a six or seven year, 10's a bit long, seven year fall from grace, where my family mm-hmm. thought I was gonna become the next great neurosurgeon. That's actually right. what my college roommate is. He's a neuroscientist at the Mayo Clinic here in the United States. And he and I were best friends in college and he pursued neuroscience to the highest degree. And mm-hmm. I, fell off along the way and decided to go into business. So when I said, all right, mom and dad, um, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So it was a really big deal for my parents for me to be doing anything. And it's sort of like the entire hopes and dreams of my family were, was put, you know, was on my shoulders. Right. Right. And so when I said, all right, um, mom and dad, I'm not going to become a neurosurgeon, but, but get this, get this. I'm going to work on wall street. They're (laughs) thinking, well, all right, that's, Maybe not as great as being a neuroscientist, but you know, Wall Street, we can live with that. And then one day I have to call him up and say, hey, guess, guess what? I'm not going to work on Wall Street. I'm going to move to China and do business in China. And they're like, well, okay, we get that. And then one day I say, all right, guys, so I'm going to quit my job. And instead of doing what I'm doing now, I'm going to teach people how to make Scrabble tile jewelry by selling $10 ebooks online. Really, it's a thing. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. So I went from neuroscientist to teaching people how to make jewelry using Scrabble tiles, as in the board game, and origami paper. And that was the first business that my wife and I launched in our tiny little apartment in Hong Kong. So, Jay, it was a huge fall from grace. And I think it's only recently, now that I you know, fast forward to today, I have a multi-million dollar company that I run. I have 50 employees. I have a full successful business from this. But it really took 10 years from when I went, call it rock bottom, starting, you know, with nothing where I donated everything that I owned and had no money and was making, you know, bringing, burning through our savings, no salary, nothing to where I am today. But I'll tell you what, those early days for anybody who's at that point, they take a lot of courage. Mm. And if you have friends who are successful, which I did had a lot of friends who are either in finance, who are lawyers, they went to places like Harvard Law, Harvard Business School, and they're all looking at me like, that guy, Ryan, he went, he's crazy. Like he like something happened to him. He went crazy. Now in retrospect, I'm able to look at them and they're all jealous because I get to, you know, make my own hours. I can work from anywhere in the world. I get to travel. I do whatever I want. Um, but at the time they're looking at me saying, why would he give it all up? Why would he give it all up to do something like that? So for anyone who's in that situation, if you've been contemplating, I will tell you this, it is scary. 
The people around you who love you the most are probably going to be the ones that disagree with what you're doing the most. And here's the dirty little secret for why. Because at the end of the day, they are jealous. Even the people around you who love you, they're jealous because in the back of their mind, they're saying, I wish I had the courage. I wish I had the balls to do that. Yeah. That's you you hit the nail on the head. I mean and and people don't like hearing that, but it's actually the honest truth. And and uh and so um wow, so so you had so yeah, I mean and I think at this point, you know, in your life, you're probably making more money than even if you had, you know, stayed on Wall Street. I mean it sounds like Oh for sure. You know, for sure. But there is but there were well. Yeah, for sure. But if I were to add up all the money between now and then, right? So this year, last year, the last few years for sure. But those first few years when I was making next to zero dollars, <laughs> uh, it was certainly a, a cut in lifestyle. And, yeah. uh, you know, for anyone who's in that, in that situation, um, I'll, I'll say this, that's the thing that holds most people back, right? So especially in a place like Hong Kong where people drive nice cars, um, you know, people eat out at very nice restaurants, you have to be prepared for a period of time to downscale your standard of living. Right. I mean, when we were living in, in, in Hong Kong, we lived in a couple places. We lived in Shangwan, and later on, we lived in Mawan. And we lived on Mawan. Um, it's an island. Um, it's yeah. not. To, you can take the, her- the ferry to Tsingyi. I don't know if you know where that is exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So on Mawan, there's a little grocery store on the island, and we ate so simply. I mean, it was tuna <laughs> fish and noodles, like, you know, every day of the week. <laughs> very, very basic. But being on the island, as opposed to being on Hong Kong Island or even... Um, uh, even in even in Tsingyi or um, you know in Kowloon, just being on Mawan was isolated enough that we didn't have the pressure of having to quote unquote keep up with the Joneses and spend money. Right. There's no right. cars on the island, so I didn't have right. to have that unpleasant reminder every single day of the Mercedes, the BMW, the Rolls Royce. <laughs> I didn't need to do that. I just walked around the island, so I didn't I didn't need a car. So I think that's another important lesson is to the extent that you can. And when we moved to the United States, we did the same thing. We didn't move back to New York City. We moved to a, a, a small uh, city in Texas on the Mexican border that's just a very poor city. We isolated ourselves from all the having to keep up with the Joneses pressure. So we wouldn't feel pressure to have to live this lifestyle. We could put all of our savings and our earnings directly back into the company. Right. I love that. It's such a great story. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, you have to be able to eat dirt uh, and, and just, just you know, really focus on your business before, you know, and then it takes a long time. It takes years, like you said. So I want to switch gears now. And so from your Scrabble business, you you have su- subsequently you've dabbled in different types of online business. And along the way, you've discovered this brilliant method, which you call the ask method. And it's now, like you said earlier, uh, the basis of your, you know, national best-selling book and, uh, and the business that is now, you know, a multi-million dollar business that you've generated. So why don't you talk us through what exactly is the ask method and how can someone implement that into their business today? Great. Well, the first couple of things that I tried online, I completely failed at. And, when I was just getting started, I stumbled on this idea of using surveys to figure out what it is that people want in the market that you're serving. And it doesn't matter if you're in finance, if you are in Scrabble tile jewelry, if you're in orchid care, 
if you use the, the idea at the time was that if you use surveys to ask the right questions, you can figure out what it is that people want to buy and then you can give it to them. And this strategy was really appealing to me because I'm very risk adverse. I'm the type of person mm. that likes to, I don't like to just go all in. I'm not like your classic entrepreneur who just like bets all his chips. I was comfortable risking just a small amount of money at a time because I my burn rate, if you will, the amount of money I had was just whatever I had in the bank and I didn't want to go through all that. So this idea was really appealing to me. Um, but what I learned was that the devil is in the details. You know, There's a quote that's attributed to Henry Ford and, and it goes like this. Henry Ford is famous, uh, uh, known for saying, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. Steve right. Jobs is famous for saying, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And the reason why those quotes ring true is because they are true. So whenever we introduce this idea of the ask method, people inevitably say, well, is it as simple as just asking what people want and giving it to them? And the answer is no. And that's really what I spent the last decade figuring out going into market after market, asking the right questions to uncover what the true demand is, to figure out not only what is it that people want, but what will they spend money to purchase? You can't just mm. ask somebody, what will you buy? Because they won't be honest with you. You have to go right. through the side door. So the ask method is all about asking the right questions at the right time in the right way to figure out what it is that people want to buy. And then the second big concept is in every market, it doesn't matter how big the market is or how small the market is, there are what we call buckets of people. You see, in every market, there are profit pools. There are certain groups of people that will spend a disproportionate amount of money, and there are other groups of people that you actually want to selectively ignore focusing on. And it's all about identifying what are the three to five most important buckets in your market and ignoring everybody else. Right. And so using this process, I went into you know the Scrabble Tile market was the first market I got any success in. We took that business to uh, almost $10,000 a month in revenue. Next business I went into was the orchid care market. So orchids are huge in Southeast Asia and in Hong Kong. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we started teaching people how to care for their orchids and built an entire business around that, that we grew from nothing to $25,000 a month in 18 months and eventually to half a million dollars a year. Wow. Then I had to go back and make my parents proud and use my, my, my background in neuroscience. So I created a business called Rocket Memory, which is a memorization uh, uh, technique business where we teach people memorization techniques um, and uh, using the brain, using the mind. And so built that business. And then from there, people started reaching out to me and asking me to help them do what I had done in these three businesses for their business. And I started mm. partnering up with bigger and bigger companies and, and went into markets like dog training and weight loss and satellite TV and business funding and golf instruction, tennis instruction. And all in all, I went into 23 different markets, uh, generated over $100 million in sales using this process. And it all started from that first little business that we started in a tiny little apartment in Mawan. Wow. That's incredible. So let's dig a little bit deeper uh, very quickly. So you said that, um, you know, essentially you are asking the right types of questions so that you can find the most profitable buckets within your niche, whatever is specifically. Totally. So how are you able to craft those questions to ensure that the people that you are targeting aren't just these freeloaders that are just trying to, 
you know, get information for free or and will never spend a dime, you know, because I think this is on, in online businesses, especially this is one of the most important things. It's when let's say you're building your email list out and you're trying to ascend them into uh, to buying some sort of product of yours. Uh, you know, the biggest challenge is basically, OK, what is what? what, what of this, of my list, you know, who's, who's actually going to, am I going to earn money off of, right? I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line, what you want to know. Totally. So I'll introduce two concepts and I think this will be really powerful. So the first is what type of information are people able to give you an accurate answer around? So the biggest mistake that people make when they run surveys is they ask people what they want. But people actually don't know what they want. We're not good at knowing what it is that we want. In fact, if I ask you this question, what do you want in life? It's something that you have a hard time thinking about. If I say, just what what would your dream house look like? What would your dream job look like? What would your perfect career look like? We actually don't know what it is that we want. But if you flip it around, we're really good at knowing what it is that we don't want. So if I flipped all of those questions around, I say, all right, think about the house you're living in right now or your apartment. What's the most annoying thing that you just don't like about your apartment? We're really good at being able to pinpoint what that thing might be. Think about the last job that you had. What was the thing that you hated the most about that job? Right? So that's the first big idea is that people don't know what they want, but they know what they don't want. So your questions want to be focused around that type of thing. Second big concept is this. A big mistake that people make when they run surveys is in in the way they analyze the data. It's something that I call the myth of the FAQ, and it goes like this. When you're paying attention to the responses people are giving you to a question like, just take the example we just used right there. When it comes to your last job, what was the thing that you hated the most? What people will do is they'll ask 100 people, get 100 answers, and they'll look at the th- themes and trends and, and, and ideas that pop up and they'll say, all right, here are the biggest themes. But the mistake that people are making is they're treating all responses equally. The big idea that you want to focus on is this. The people who leave you the longest, most detailed, most passionate responses, those are the people who are most likely to spend money to solve the problem that you are asking about. Think about it like this. If I asked you, what was the thing that you hated most about your last job? And you said, I don't know, the hours were a little long. Versus, oh my gosh, where where can I begin? You know, the thing that I hated the most was this and that and the other. Of those two people, who is more likely to buy a product solving the problem that you're asking about? It's the person leaving the long, detailed, passionate response. So that's what you want to do. You want to focus on those people when you're analyzing the responses and actually ignore everyone else. So the soundbite for the second concept that I'll leave you with is depth of response is actually more important than frequency of response. That's that's actually very powerful because I don't think people recognize that, especially when they're just scanning results. You know, I think that's that's a powerful way of 
of of looking at things and um and guys listening in uh you know ryan goes through everything in his book ask i I highly recommend you picking it up i i read it myself and it actually goes quite like i I can tell that you have sort of a scientific you know background because the way in which you analyze your data is 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 actually very detail oriented um ryan i know we have to look up to wrap up here thank you so much for coming on the show um you know last couple questions is uh what are you working on uh this year or in the next six months to a year is there any exciting projects that you have that you're working on related to your business and uh and the final question is just where people can find you follow you and connect with you well that's great and i appreciate the question jay and i wish we had more time because we could go so much deeper on this (laughs) i know but we'll have to have you on again at some point (laughs) we'll do we'll do a part two i'm totally down for it but in the meantime a in addition to the book which is a great starting place the best place to go deeper on this is to go to askmethodworkshop.com. And that's actually the thing that I'm most excited about in my business right now, and here's why. We made a commitment to, in addition to our book, in addition to our paid training, paid consulting programs, paid coaching programs, to put out the absolute best free content we could. We wanted to model ourselves after the organization known as TED, if you've ever seen the free TED Talks online, and put our absolute best work out there. And so I recently put together something called the Ask Method Workshop. It's a free workshop that you can go through online that opens up periodically, depending on when this is published. It might be open up now. It might open up again in a very short amount of time. We open up a few times a year, and you can actually go through the Ask Method process. It's my absolute best work. It's free. It's a free video series that walks you through all the steps of the Ask Method and how to implement it step by step. It includes a series of PDFs and checklists, as well as a mind map that walks you through all the steps involved to execute this in your business. So if you go to askmethodworkshop.com, it'll take you to that free resource. It's the thing I'm most excited about and most excited about for anyone here listening to this who's excited to go deeper into the Ask Method. That's awesome. Askmethodworkshop.com. We'll make sure to have that all linked up in the notes. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to jumping into that workshop. Awesome. Jay, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to connecting again sometime soon. All right. Take care now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? 
After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.